I'll, I'll also mention, and uh, I'll be back here, of course, again next month, but uh, in January, I'm going to be teaching a day-long uh, retreat on January 3rd. And it's some, I forget what I called it, but it's something about renewal. So it's sort of a beginning of the year type day. Uh, so if you decide to relapse over the holidays, this will be a good opportunity <laughs> to uh, restart your program. Hmm, what? Where are we going to relapse? Oh, I'm sorry. Here, in this room, if it's still here. Is there going to be moving across the street pretty soon? Maybe not that soon. So, as promised, uh, the 11th step, the 11th month, uh, I thought I would uh, really kind of go into the go through kind of the, all the language of step 11 tonight uh, in a way I, I don't think I've done here in a while. Um, so just to uh, state step 11 from the 12 steps, it says that we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So uh, I think it's the longest step by word count, which is sort of interesting, since it's the one that's sort of about letting go of thoughts. Uh, okay, that's just trivia, I don't know. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's more than 140 characters. Somebody should try tweeting it and find out. Uh, But it's a really interesting step, and, and, and before I can even address the step, I have to say that, you know, I, well, I accept the word God as something that can be understood from a Buddhist perspective. I don't accept that God is a he, so I reject that word in the step, but I understand that it was used at the time the steps were written because the sexism of our language said that he referred to people in general. It was, a, it was supposed to be a, a neutral gender term, even though it wasn't. You know, it's kind of weird how that worked. But uh, now we're in this troubling time of trying to say his or her or its or they, their, and that we use the plural pronoun to mean singular. Okay, this isn't a grammar class. <laughs> So let me go back to the beginning of the step. We sought through prayer and meditation. So I think this, this phrase itself contains a, a lot that can be explored. Um, this word sought, past, oh, here I go again, grammar. It's the past tense of the verb to seek. It's an irregular verb, but anyway. The, the seeking, that's... This is the first part of the step, and, and I think... Uh, uh, something that I think is important and certainly I hold uh, vital to the path that there's a sense of movement, of continuity, not of getting somewhere or being somewhere or arriving somewhere, but rather being in a process. And that seeking is this spiritual seeking is the path, is our path. 
and it's founded in our intention. So in the Buddhist teachings, intention is part of the Eightfold Path, and it's said to be the key to karma. That is, it's the key to how your actions uh, bear fruit, because it's your, the intention behind your actions that really informs the, the quality of those actions. Whether we're doing actions out of selfishness or greed or anger or envy, or whether we're doing them out of kindness or service or generosity, out of wisdom. So this idea of seeking, uh, that we're on a path, uh, sort of the starting point of the step. So um, I'm, I'm going I'm to come back to prayer and meditation in those terms, but I want to jump ahead to sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact. So this is another phrase that I really love in this step. Conscious contact is really a synonym for mindfulness. Being mindful is consciously contacting the present moment, being present with our experience. So it doesn't require sort of a God to consciously contact something. Uh, consciously contacting God in a way, in my mind, is actually a redundant statement. If I am consciously contacting the present moment, if I am in contact consciously, then where's, where am I going to find God? In the past or the future? Of course not. God can only be here now, whatever God might be. So we talk about the presence of God, right? Or God even as a presence, So conscious contact is in itself contact with God, I think. That's how I see it. And and when we're practicing mindfulness, when we have have really a... Maybe it doesn't have to be like this, but, but I certainly think that when we have a profound moment of feeling present, it's a powerful spiritual experience. Whether it's, you know, looking at a sunset or feeling the breath, or just uh, being alive. Some aspect of just being alive, some moment of aliveness, of joy, or even of sorrow. But just being fully present. That's, that, to me, is the spiritual experience of contacting God. It's, I think that uh, sometimes we make the word God more complicated uh, in that sense. Uh, so, well, do I want to go there? I think not. So let me back up now to, uh, to prayer and meditation, and then I'm going to probably jump up to, to God too. So, um, But people will often ask me, um, what does it mean to pray for a Buddhist? Because we associate prayer with this kind of asking for something, uh, pleading with God to give us something or to, to heal someone or to, uh, you know, maybe, you know, it, it, we might be praying for something that's unselfish, but nonetheless, it's still a sense of wanting this external being or power to give something to us or to others. And since 
in Buddhist teachings, we don't have a sense that there's some being out there that's controlling things or that can grant our wishes, the kind of genie or Santa Claus God. Um, how, what does it mean? Do, do Buddhists pray, people will say, or what, what does it mean to pray, or how would we pray? How can I practice this step if I'm trying to be a Buddhist, or I don't believe in God? And so, so if we look at many practices uh, in the Buddhist tradition, have a quality of, um, I wouldn't say so much asking as, uh, as um, just putting out, uh, well, it is kind of asking. So l- let me just give you an example. So the loving-kindness meditation, typically we're taught to use phrases uh, where we say, may I be happy, may you be happy. May all beings be happy. Well, we're not saying, God, please make me happy. But at the same time, we're sort of asking or sort of opening to that, making a a wish for that. So what does that mean if we don't believe that there's some power out there that's going to grant that? Well, I think the way we understand it at least one way that we understand it, is that we're really speaking to ourselves and trying to cultivate a quality within ourselves of kindness, of love towards ourselves, towards others, towards all beings. We're trying to train ourselves in a way. Um, So... Just to talk a little bit about then what is prayer? Even a prayer to a God is still just talking to yourself. Okay, just as a starting point, we can say, I don't know what prayer is, but I'm saying words in my mind, so I'm, I could say I'm talking to myself. But why am I talking to myself? And what am I saying? So let's take another example of a prayer, not a Buddhist prayer, but one that's often spoken at 12-step meetings. The serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Am I really asking and hoping that some external being is going to make me serene and... uh, courageous and wise? I don't think that's what I'm doing. What I think I'm doing is I'm reminding myself not to get caught in trying to control things that I can't control or be irresponsible about things that I should take action around and that I want to pay attention to the difference. So I'm talking to myself, and I'm reminding myself that this is how I want to be. So if I'm reminding myself about how I want to be and how I want to view the world, what I'm doing, again, from a Buddhist perspective, is I'm setting my intention. I'm saying, this is how I want to be. I want to see the world in this way. So a lot of prayers 
I think, are intention setting. Um, sometimes they are sp- trying to bring myself out of my head into my heart. I found myself a few years ago on a meditation retreat after quite a few days of sitting and really meditating very deeply, that the Hail Mary came up for me. And I was raised Catholic and you know, hadn't thought of that in years, and I don't even remember it all. But certain phrases from it started to really resonate in my heart. And it was just, there was just a sweetness in it. So it was connecting for me with something. So part of my daily practice is to do prayers. I do prayers of healing. I think of the people that I know who are suffering or are sick right now, and I say, just say to myself, may you be healed. And one of the reasons I do that is that in the course of my day, I don't think about the people that I care about very much. And I want to, so I, I also send loving kindness to my brothers and their families and my you know, various people you know, that I care about, because otherwise I don't think about them. And if I do that as part of my meditation every day, I feel closer to them. I don't know how else to put it. It's just a, it's just a sense of connection. So, I'm not sure that I'm making any grand statement or overarching statement about what prayer is for Buddhism, but I guess my point, my, if I have an overarching point, it's that prayer isn't necessarily about petitioning for something. There are many purposes to prayer. There are many things that we express through prayer that aren't about God fixing things. And I'll also note that prayer, when practiced in a repetitive way, which certain prayers, particularly in tradition, Christian tradition, and I imagine in others, are repeated over and over. Prayers like the the Jesus prayer, Jesus Christ have mercy on me, saying that over and over and over. But there's certain prayers that some so-called saints have used over and over to go into states which Buddhists would call meditation. So, and, and the Buddhists call loving-kindness meditation a meditation. <laughs> Sorry. They call, you know, saying, may I be happy, may you be happy, meditation. And, but you know, a lot of people would probably call that prayer. So what I see is that we're really talking about a spectrum of practices that uh, if we take out the concept of petition, petitionary prayer, praying to somebody for something, that there are really just a range of practices, which uh, in, the, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition we talk about, upaya, skillful means. They're just tools, Right? which is very much in harmony with the 12-step world. We aren't, or it's not about you know, ideology or religion. It's about what, how can I train myself? How can I be a happier person, a better person? How can I maintain my recovery? What works? And there's many ways that prayer can be really useful and can actually wind up being a, uh, a meditation. You know, when we... I, I'm sure that the rosary, which again I did a lot when I was a kid, becomes a meditation after you, you know, because, gee, what's it look like? You ever seen the rosary beads? What's that look like? You ever seen those Buddhists with their mala beads? It's the same thing, right? It's, it's all kind of blending together. So I don't think we have to worry too much about, like, 
prayer and meditation, which is what you know, there's the thing, oh, prayer is speaking to God, meditation is listening to the answer or something. I don't know. Uh, that's, I, I don't go for those quick answers, unless I make them up. <laughs> Meditation itself, though, um, you know, there are many ways that meditation now in our culture is sort of presented as sort of in therapies and healing practices and all sorts of uh, ways that it's uh, being used, and, and you know, and that's quite lovely. But I, I was thinking today, as I was as I was thinking about this talk, about how the Buddha presents this path, and there are certain suttas which are the long discourses. Some of the ones that I'm thinking about are the long discourses. They some of them are short, but in the long discourses, the Buddha has this kind of uh, form that he goes through. And, and we can sort of assume that, I'm not sure that he actually, present, the Buddha himself presented it this way, but that the people who compiled the teaching sort of presented it, they sort of put it together and said, well, there's a logic to this. So, you know, he starts, before even teaching people meditation or suggesting meditation, there's um, the groundwork of following precepts, Living, starting to live a moral life, practicing generosity. Uh, so just as with recovery, there's a foundation of sobriety and integrity before we even try to move into uh, a real spiritual development or mental development. So th- then, you know, the Buddha presents uh, some simple practices of paying attention to the breath, paying attention to sensations, um, you know, just the mindfulness practice that we teach, noticing thoughts. And, and then he says, in that process, you're going to start to notice that there are certain things that tend to take you away, t- take you out. And these are the five hindrances that you're, they're, and they're just things that, you know, capture the mind, capture your attention, and things that uh, affect your physical experience. So, Desire and aversion, sort of the two main mental uh, directions that our mind goes off and gets distracted. Um, Then sleepiness and restlessness are kind of the physical things that get in the way of our practice. And doubt, the sort of lack of trust in the the process. So he says we we have to kind of meet these, these hindrances and we have to and somehow let go of them or move through them. So that's, for most of us, most of our meditation is dealing with one or more of these hindrances. And they're, you know, they're just an ongoing part of it. But at a certain point, and it, maybe at certain moments, uh, you know, we can, we can uh, let go of the hindrances. So we could say that you know, when the hindrances fall away, there's more conscious contact, right? You know, that's, that's, that, uh, when, the, when the hindrances are in the way, it's hard to be present. And, 
you can mostly just be present with the hindrances, which is you can do, but it's just not that pleasant. So at a certain point, as they fall away, then the mind starts to become malleable, bright. So this whole list of things the Buddha talks about, concentrated. And there's this, this clarity that comes. So in the step, it says, we're praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Is that right? It's hard for me to pull out the sentence in the middle. So, in Buddhist terms, the it's hard to find, you know, parallel language because there's an implication in the step that there's this something we call God that has will. That, so, will is associated with consciousness, right? with, with a, a being that has wishes. And if you don't believe that there's a being that's called God, that God is something other than a being, then it's hard to find will in there. Uh, that might be a cul-de-sac, so I'm going to pull back out of there for a moment. <laughs> so, but, okay, so, so this is what I'll say, is that what, in our practice, what we're trying to get to is what the Buddha calls knowledge and vision. Knowledge and vision of the truth, of the way things are, of the Dharma. Oh, you know, in lofty terms, that's enlightenment. In less lofty terms, it's insight. Another way of talking about it is intuitive wisdom. That for me is, that's the phrase that kind of clicks for me. Because I, I've had that experience of having in, an intuitive wisdom. Like, oh, I get, oh, something becomes clear, right? A moment of clarity. So this is where, what, where after or the mind becomes concentrated, malleable, bright, all this stuff that the Buddha says it becomes when the hindrances fall away. What comes after that, at a certain point, you develop knowledge and wisdom of the Dharma. That, I think, is the, the closest parallel to the will of God. It's the, the truth. And it's not associated with I, me, or mine. It's not about... what. In fact, a key to that knowledge and vision is the understanding that the idea of self is actually a construction. So, just as the 12 steps are, the, one of the reasons the 12 steps are saying, praying only for knowledge of his will for us, is that it's trying to get us away from my will for how things should be. Right? They're saying, don't pray and meditate to get stuff. That's what step 12, that's one of the messages of step 11. 
This is not about praying and meditating to get what you want. It's praying and meditating to get the wisdom and insight to act skillfully in the world, to, to understand the truth and then to act skillfully out of that. that. That that clarity and that knowledge and wisdom gives you the power to do the right thing, gives you the clarity and knowledge and understanding to do the right thing. So in the, in the 12-step world, we talk about, you know, self is the problem, right? In the Buddhist world, it's slightly different. It's saying, it, it, it's getting at the same thing, but on sort of a, another level, which is the reason self is a problem is because it's a construction that doesn't hold together. And when, so when you try to satisfy self, it's like, you know, pouring gas into a, ga- into a gas tank that's got a hole in the bottom. There's not, it, it doesn't stay. You know, there's nothing to satisfy. It just doesn't hold. And so there's this, that's, you know, that's just like pouring alcohol into an alcoholic. It's never enough, right? The ego can't be satisfied any more than the alcoholic craving can be satisfied. And so that's the wrong path to take. Again, that's what the step is telling us. Don't set out on this path in order to get personal satisfaction or you know, personal power. Step 12 says the same thing. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of this step, we tried to carry this message to others. It's saying this path isn't about you having a spiritual awakening and so you're so happy and I've got mine now. It's about there's, there isn't you know, what the steps, 12-step folks didn't quite get, but they, they knew it intuitively, that that wasn't a place to arrive at because you couldn't stay there. But they saw that it's, you know, it's, the path isn't about giving it away. It's just that that's the natural thing to do. When you see that there isn't anybody here to satisfy, then what you want to do is help other people to see that. It's the same reason the Buddha got up off from under the Bodhi tree and went out to teach because he realized, wow, other people can, be, can benefit from this, this teaching, this clarity that I have. So it's, I, f- I find it somewhat intriguing to, to make this uh, connection then that this idea of clarity and vision that the Buddha is pointing to as the same as you know, knowledge of God's will for us. If we just take out the word will, I think, you know, knowledge of God, knowledge of truth, you know, knowledge of Dharma. It's, it's difficult, and you know, as I'm teaching this online course, and a lot of people who are very new to meditation, uh, as, we, as we practice, it's so easy to get you know, caught up in, this is about me, 
This is about self-improvement. You know. uh, this is about uh, me getting something. And even if it's, I'm going to get it so I can give it away, it's still, there's this ego caught up in that. And, but what's even more persistent is this grading of our meditation. You know, oh, I can't, you know, my mind keeps wandering. I can't do this right. Or, I, uh, you know, I'm not very good at this. You know, uh, um, because again, it, it winds up being about me. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to become a good meditator. And then what? Go to the Meditation Olympics? You know? <laughs> it's just... So then, you know, we come back to that opening word, sought. No, we're this, this seeking this idea that it's just a... We're just on this path. You know, we're seeking to improve, which means that, you know, we understand that uh, it's progress, not perfection. Right? And you know, when the, the first time the Buddha encountered someone after his enlightenment, uh, it's even before he actually gave like a a specific teaching. He's he's on the he's on the road. And he's, he's setting out to try to find his former companions because he wants to share with them his revelation, his, his awakening. And he encounters a wanderer who sees him and is like, wow, this guy's got something going on. Like, obviously the Buddha was kind of, had some energy around him at that point. He says, you know, who is your teacher? You know, how did, what, what is your teaching? Where, where are you coming from? And the Buddha's like, I have no teacher. I have, uh, you know, I've had enlightenment through my own path. And um, the, this, this wanderer kind of looked at him and was like, this guy's a little, you know, off. He's, it was kind of like, this is too much, you know. Uh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> thanks for sharing, you know, and he kind of moved on. And and the Buddha realized that he had to be careful about how he kind of presented himself. Like, I am the fully enlightened master, self, I did it all myself. And, you know, he kind of went back to a much simpler approach. Let me talk about suffering. <laughs> Let me talk about what causes suffering. Let me talk about a path to, to free ourselves from suffering. Uh, okay, yeah, we want to hear that. Uh, but when there was a, even the whiff of ego, you know, it, it didn't, didn't fly. Uh, and of course, it, it wasn't ego. But, you know, most of the people that you meet in the street who say that they've gotten themselves enlightened, you know, they're, they're not actual Buddhists, you know. So uh, uh, it's rare when, when they're, they're real Buddhists. So um, I guess that's, that's enough for now. We have a few minutes left if uh, people want to make any comments or ask any questions. Well, I'm glad that I've completely covered the subject.
left no holes. <laughs> My name's Paul. Um, Paul? Addict, alcoholic, and all kinds of stuff. Um, that uh, cul-de-sac that you uh, got us into. Oh. Thanks so much. Which was that? Before. Which one was that? What was it? Uh, oh, the will of God. Yeah. yeah. God's will. Um, God's will. Well, I can talk about that. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like to spin it as Buddha nature. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, just feels less God-like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of think that the Dharma itself, the teachings of the Dharma, point to, you know, what we're supposed to do, <laughs> I guess. You know, the teachings on the, uh, the Eightfold Path is kind of like the, the way karma works, and karma... For me, for me, the closest analog to God in Buddhism, closest single element of the Dharma, is the law of karma. Uh, because it's what kind of determines the results of actions. And so if I, if I understand how karma works, what actions are skillful, in, when I say actions, I mean thoughts, words, and deeds. That is, what what karmic making things uh, bring about what results in in general terms. Not you know, I don't. It's not a simple formula, but in general terms, if I know what the skillful ways of thinking, speaking, and acting are, then I'm living in harmony with the Dharma, and that's. To me, that that's really what step eleven, I think, is about: is living in harmony. You know, again, from a Buddhist viewpoint, living in harmony with the Dharma. Dharmony. So, what? Dharmony. Dharmony. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Should be the name of your next album. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yes. I don't. Um, I was noticing that you were kind of directing this breakdown of the eleventh step to Buddhists that maybe don't believe in God. Uh huh. True. I'm sitting here thinking, well, I believe in God, and I also really love practicing Buddhism, and I'm wondering why your talk was more directed towards people who don't believe in God. Um. Well. First of all, in traditional Buddhist teachings, there's no, there's no concept of monotheism. You know, there are, in fact, gods, but it turns out that they're, they're just as caught up in the cycle of samsara as, uh, as humans. So, so I'm trying to um, use that framework Because that's, I guess that's a challenging framework. And it's kind of the challenge in some ways that I put for myself. And it's also the one that I run into a lot of people asking about. The idea, I will say that the idea of believing in God uh, 
it's um, it's a kind of a vague idea to me in a way. If if I because when people ask me, "Do you believe in God?" I'm like, that all depends on how you define God, right? And and so for me, I see the Dharma as being the same as God. So if I say, yes, I believe in God, but and what I mean is the Dharma, people might think that I believe in a Christian God or a um, Hindu God or something. And so, so I usually, uh, yeah, that, that's a tricky, tricky um, idea. So, the, so I guess, what, I guess what I'm saying is there, there are a lot of, if I, if I talk about the step from the standpoint of I mean I, so so I feel like I actually am talking about God but but um, but not like a Western view of God um, but I'm also just you know, expressing my own thoughts and I don't and even though I'm sitting up here <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm right I, I, I so I guess I'm saying I, I hope I'm not that's not uh, offensive in what I'm in how I'm putting it Yeah. Yeah. Just briefly, to, to, to me, I hear you um, emphasizing the commonalities yeah. of different traditions and schools of thought. And to me, that's very refreshing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's <laughs> unlike this, this tendency that, that, that our minds lead us to of, of separating and segregating, mm-hmm. putting things in little boxes and Emphasizing the differences between yeah. different kinds. Well, thank you, and and you know that's kind of a. It's actually sort of a theme in my life as well as in my teaching. Um, I remember trying to get my parents to get along better. You know, and you know it was that same thing, trying to get them to. But anyway, not to go into my psychodrama. Um, my philosophy, if you will, is that if two things are true, then they must share, there must be something essential that they share. And certainly for me, the 12 steps work, and Buddhism works, and, you know, Christianity, I also believe, presents true teachings. And I, I think most religions contain the Dharma as one of my real inspirations is a Thai monk named Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. And I talk about him in, a, in probably all three of my books. Um, and he, he gave a series of lectures on Christianity and Buddhism in 1967. Um, 
And though my reading of those kind of gave me a framework that I built a lot of what I teach about God from. It gave me some clarity of ideas that were kind of like I couldn't quite put together. Um, and his part of his essential teaching is that the Dharma is just the truth, and God is the, is the truth, kind of. You know, it's, it's much more than that that he says, but, but he's saying that in, in the more mythic or mythical or mythological religions, the ideas, the, the, the Dharma gets kind of covered over with this storytelling or uh, uh, mythology where people get confused and, th- and take that literally and don't see that, oh, it's a teaching. Right? Um, I'm actually, I actually went to see um, Testament. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a play. It's, it's playing at ACT. And it's about Mary, a.k.a. Jesus' mother. <laughs> and it's written by an Irish writer, Colm Tobin, who he actually put it out as a novel, but it was for originally a play. And it's a one-woman play. And it's years after Jesus has died. And she's talking about him and her life. And, you know, it's, it's um, trying to make something, like, imagine what would this, this woman's real life have been like? And she's saying, they're, they're trying to tell me how he was conceived. I was there. <laughs> I know how he was conceived, you know, and it's just it's sort of things like that. It's like, oh, right. wow. And, you know, people, people that, uh, uh, that became mythical figures that were actually human. And uh, I'm also reading a, a book that some friends of mine are publishing. He asked me to write a blurb. It's called The Buddha's Wife. It's interesting. These two things, you know, they're, they're again, modern day uh, imaginings of these, char- these mythic, well, mythical, but historical mythical figures who became mythologized. And it's from the point of view of the Buddha's wife and what she went through when he left and walked out on her and her infant. You know, and how she dealt with that, and how they imagined that she dealt with it, not really how she dealt with it, but they build this beautiful, beautiful story, and and kind of they're they're talking about. I'm sorry, this is completely, but but it's interesting. It's this book's going to come out next year, so you're going to want to read it. It's 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 um, they talk about the Buddha as the the one who left, the one who went forth. Going forth is the term for becoming a monk and go, leaving the family, leaving society and going forth. And then they say, but we were the ones who stayed behind and that this was also a path. Staying, so they call it the relational path. The one who goes forth is the solitary, right? This is the heroic figure that traditionally that's been like the, the, the spiritual uh, you know, the great spiritual teacher is the hero who goes forth alone. And they're saying, no, but there's another path to enlightenment, which is to stay 
and be in community, the relational path. It's really, really lovely, lovely, lovely piece. Um, don't know if I can get back out of that one, so I'll just stop. Did you have, yeah? My name is Elliot. <clears throat> I'm interested, there's a Christian concept of, uh, um, well, there's like Holy Ghost. I'm particularly interested <laughs> in uh, spirits that are not God. There are spirits that are more in the consciousness of some plane of existence. And demons and the idea of possession. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any equivalent in that, up to that in Buddhist thought? <laughs> Sort of not without getting too, you know, a, mm. another whole discussion. There was a fellow here, who was a friend of mine, who left during the break because because uh, he wasn't going to drink the Kool Aid, and w meaning I, my I interpret that as being skeptical doubt oh. took him out. Um, mm. But I but I noticed that <clears throat> especially in recovery, when new people come in, they're possessed of a lot of the same ideas. That I was possessed of when I first came in, and so this is an idea of such, being, such as you know, if you could. Oh uh, well, I'm different from these people. Oh, uh -huh. you know, my alcoholism is either worse or right. not as bad. Right. Uh, that guy's really irritating me over there. You know, all the things that we were squirrely, or I was squirrely when I came in. <coughs> uh, maybe not as much the third or fourth time. Um, <laughs> but a little squirrely, you know, because you feel a little different, new, yeah. or, uh, yeah. uh, or in the case of relapse, there's like a failure, or, or yeah. I'm really yeah. myself, and you know, all these like selfish thoughts, right. you know, centered around ego, of yeah. one form or another. So that's kind of a broad, so, broad swipe. But go back to the beginning of the question. What was it about? I was talking about demons and possession. Oh, demons and possession. Well, there's definitely that stuff in Buddhism. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, definitely in Buddhism. Uh, you know, the in fact, the loving kindness meditation was taught because supposedly, I mean, the mythology is that the monks went to this forest, and the forest spirits didn't like them meditating. And they so they spooked them, and so they went back to Buddha. Said like, there's these you know scary spirits out here. He said, just go out there and send them loving kindness. And, the, and they, so they went back and they, may you be happy. May, and the spirits were like, oh, you can meditate here. That's cool. Which I take that to be the forest is a scary place. But if I go there and breathe and open my heart and practice loving kindness, then I can let go of the fear. You know. Um, you know, I can't. I, I guess I'll just start by saying that I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to make this pretty quick. First of all, just that there are many different schools of Buddhism, so there's a lot of different thoughts around this stuff. But I think what's relevant for us, maybe, is that practicing in meditation on a very serious level can be psychologically risky. Um, and so those would be called demons in traditional, traditionally. Today we call them psychological problems, mental illness. Uh, so th there is that. And, and uh, 
because possession and all that is just, you know, we're really talking about, I mean, in contemporary terms, we would call that like mental illness, right? Not, we don't, I don't think that, I mean, you know, in our secular culture, that would be someone you would send to a therapist to get treatment or give them medication, right? Somebody who said they were, thought they were possessed. Um, and those kinds of experiences, uh, so occasionally people have uh, some really bad experiences, like up the hill here, when they get so opened up and stuff kind of cracks inside. So there are risks. One should be careful and stay close to your teacher and your therapist and your sponsor, yeah. your program. Yeah. I don't like ending on that note, so <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll end with some uh, loving kindness instead. So let's just uh, sit together for a few moments. May each of us derive benefit from our practice together. May we cultivate peace, serenity, wisdom, and joy. And may we spread those qualities May we spread those qualities to those we love and bring those qualities into our lives and share them with all those we encounter. May our hearts open and spread love and joy, wisdom and peace to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. So the one thing I did not mention, which I usually announce, is that you can support me through your donations into the basket as you leave. We call this Dana the practice of generosity. So thank you for whatever you can do in that regard. And I hope that I see you next month. And if you're in the South Bay, I will be in Redwood City on Monday night at IMC. So be well and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.